but I do have a lot more questions and try to get some dialogue back and forth going and get y'all's thoughts and insights and opinions. And so tonight we're going to be doing just that. So I can get 12 verses done tonight if y'all don't want to talk. If y'all do want to talk, we may just finish it up next week. Well, actually not next week because next week we'll be doing a, uh, a church work night. There's going to be no Awana next week. And so we're going to have normal service at 6 p.m. and we're going to do a church work night. There's a lot of things to tidy up here and, and we'll take care of that. And then we'll be back in James the following Sunday work week. So with that being the case, I do have some questions I want to start off with. And I was sort of asking Alyssa these questions the other day, and it was interesting seeing her insights. But I do want to ask first, you know, if you'd be willing, think back. When you were in school, grade school, middle school, high school, did you have a favorite teacher? Show anybody have a favorite teacher? Anybody can remember who they were and why they were your favorite? Care to share, Bill? Uh, my psychology teacher was absolutely impressive. Yeah. Uh, you know, psychology is just, you know, it's just rote memorization for the most part. Everything tends to blur. But this guy mm-hmm. was a church of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, ordained minister. Mm-hmm. They didn't give it so much the religious slant, so much as he gave everything a fair shake. Okay. And uh, it was just wonderful to, to sit in, in a class that really unearthed me in the first part. Yeah. No. Anyway, uh, to get a fair shake on this thing and not no. intimidated by somebody else. And, he was the kind of teacher that everybody bought him something after the class. Yeah. So many people would just say yeah. bye and tell him thank you and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, awesome. Excellent. Excellent. Great guy. Cody. Mr. Post did. He was my U.S. history teacher. Okay. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it'd be like, you know, homeroom, we'd be sitting there, and he'd ask me some weird, like, history question. If I could answer it, great. If not, it would bother me all day. Yeah. And then, uh, same with him, I'd ask him some, like, I, and it actually made me, like, study stuff harder. Okay, yeah. You know, like, truthfully, I kind of just coached through, you know, <laughs> just did the bare minimum to pass. Right, yeah. I wanted to be done. And I think uh, U.S. history... Oh, okay. Probably like elementary. <laughs> <laughs> Other than that, I just try to stay above the yeah. academic eligibility. So yeah. Sports. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Typical jock. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? No? Okay. Oh, yeah. Taylor. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. 
Excellent. Excellent. So, so I want to put a little bit of a different spin on it. Who is your least favorite teacher in school and why? Miss Looney. Looney. You were quick with that one, Jerry. Why Miss Looney? You're shaking your head, too. Just yeah, like her because she gave homework every day. You were one of those that didn't like doing homework, huh? No, that's why you didn't like her. <laughs> I love you, Jerry. <laughs> so just overworking you, huh? Overloading you, overworking you, taking away all the play time and the free time, and putting it into school time. Okay. Anybody else, teachers? You just Mike. All of them. <laughs> you don't want to be there. Do they not show show a care or a concern? No. No. So they're just there clocking in, clocking out type deal? Okay. Anybody else? Gabe. Despite the opposite experience, uh-huh. 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 that's a scary course, that's why. Yeah. Uh, there's always either a really great experience with psychology or a really bad one. Okay. A class that's supposed to be more about open mindedness, she's very mm. Right. Uh, or write the way she wanted to write wow. Yeah. She, you said she got fired? <laughs> I'm assuming for that or <laughs> Okay. So she was one of those is either my way or the highway and if you don't believe this then I ain't got time for you. And you had a teacher that didn't really care and just clocked in, clocked out and didn't try to focus and and Jerry, they're just overloading you with schoolwork. Anybody else? Least favorite teacher? This does have relevance to tonight. Anybody else? No? I remember at my high school, uh, before we moved out from Maryland, Oklahoma, I forget what his name was, but uh, he was our history teacher. And I just remember one day, you know, people would sleep. How many people slept in class? I'm just curious. How many people slept in class? Okay. okay, we got some honest people here. Oh, this one kid sleeping in class, and the teacher threw a history book at him, hit him in the head. <laughs> so that was a pretty bad thing to do. But he was probably one of my least favorite because he just, it was very boring, you know, and then just do some of the antics and shenanigans he did uh, just were over the top. So what, what would you say the difference is between your favorite and your least favorite? Thoughts? Passion? Okay, anything else? In other words, yeah, okay, no, right, right. So they're in it for themselves, the others really in it for the students. Okay, anybody else? Difference, okay, so uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, you see me up there sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Foot stomping moments. Write those down. It might be on the test. Yeah, exactly. So think about it. You know, with the least favorite teachers, you got people that don't have passion. They, they seem like they really don't care about the students. They're clocking in, clocking out. They're throwing books at students, things like that. They're making it really boring and dry, and they don't even understand the material themselves. What, what should some consequences be for them, those types of teachers that you're familiar with? If you were able to give consequences for your own experiences with your least favorite teachers, 
What would you like to do? But say they were touchable, okay? Remove their tenure. Remove their tenure, okay? Make them work for it. Make them work for it. Now, define tenure for me. I've heard that before. Okay, so they're pretty much. Okay. Oh, sort of like Congress, right? Those are the ones that can run in there and just take down the American flag and put up. Okay. So the tenure. Okay, take away their tenure. They're. they're Reinstate it. Make them work for it. Okay. Yeah. All right. So removing them from the position. Anything else? Thoughts? I was just curious. I was thought it'd be interesting, you know, exercise to go back, jog our memory banks, think about, you know, our past and teachers, some consequences. Because tonight we're going to be looking a little bit about that tonight. We're going to be in James chapter 3. Like I said, Lord willing, we're going to cover 12 verses. And there was uh, relevance to what we were just now talking about, and we'll get to that here in a little bit. But in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, James writes, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. You see, here in the first part of chapter 3 of the book of James, we just got done with a very important passage in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, where we spent about three or four weeks looking at what this concept of faith without works is dead. We understand that James is writing to Christian believers, and they are Christians, and they're going through quite a big bout of persecution. They lost homes, they lost families, they're part of one of the many dispersions that had happened to the Jewish people. And so he was trying to encourage them to go ahead and stop having an inward focus, to have more of an outward focus, to actually live your faith actively. And so now he's transitioning into a different part that's happening within the church. You see here when James says, be not many masters, this, in the Greek word is didaskalos. And basically, when we study this word in scripture, it gives the idea of one that's in the church that's able to explain scripture, to be able to explain what God is talking about within the context of the passages and how to make it applicable to our lives today. Now, that's why if anybody has ever done any sort of uh, college courses or college certificates or been to seminary, things like that, one of the many classes you're required to take is a hermeneutics class. And I have the joy of taking like four or five of them because I just really enjoy hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word just to mean uh, studying scripture, interpretation. How do we interpret this letter? Because James was written roughly 2,000 years ago. And so how do we take a letter that James wrote to people living in that day, going through a certain situation, and how do we apply that to our life today? And so a teacher is one that's able to go ahead and study scripture, understand its context, find out the application of the passage, and how to apply that principle to our life today. It happens all the time here at Open Door, whether you're in our class, you're in Brock's class, you're with Pastor Ken or Pastor Cody preaching, that that is what happens uh, every time we attempt to exegete the Scripture, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. Another interesting fact is, according to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, verse number 28, uh, the position of a teacher within the local body is actually a, uh, for lack of better words, 
I, I just couldn't find a better word for it, but like an important one. When you're in verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, we read that there's a, a structure that God appoints within the church body. In the first, he appointed in the first century those apostles, those ones that have seen the risen Christ, and they're there to share the message of the risen Christ. Then from there, they appointed prophets. Now we have the prophets in the church, and then after the prophets, the prophets being the one that are foretelling of uh, Scripture of the Old Testament, he says, thirdly, after those, God had set in the churches what's called teachers or didascalosses. And basically what these are are just that people that are able to dig into the word, uh, seek to understand what God is meaning contextually from the original language, and apply it to our life today. It's interesting because in 1 Corinthians, he says, then after that, it talks about uh, giving the church workers of miracles and, and serving and different spiritual gifts and things of that nature. And so one of the positions, one of the offices, if you will, within the church is the position or office of a teacher. That's why in uh, uh, one of the passages in Ephesians chapter 4, it describes it as pastor teachers. And so, matter of fact, if we were to look at the requirements in 2 Timothy chapter number 3, we would see one of the requirements in order to be a pastor is you have to be able to teach the Word of God. If you cannot teach the Word of God, then right off the bat there, it's unfit to be a pastor because they have to be able to study, dig into Scripture to find out what is God saying and how does it apply to our life two plus thousand years later. This is not just anybody per se, but these are people that I believe, like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that God gives to the local body of the church. Does not mean that anybody is better than anybody else. We've talked about that before when I preached on the lifeblood of the church, and really the lifeblood of the church is everybody inside the congregation using your spiritual gift. It does not matter if you're called to be the pastor of a church, or if you're called to uh, just serve the gift of administration, uh, whatever the case is, all spiritual gifts are necessary to have a healthy functioning body. Not one particular position or gift is any better than the rest. It just means that we are all called with a different gift to serve God in a specific function and for his mission. Now, what else, else Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 4, you read that the pastor teachers given to the church are for three things, three reasons. For the, the perfecting or the completion, the maturity of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so as a pastor teacher, this is a threefold mission statement that we would have to fulfill, that we have to mature uh, the church, the congregation, help with discipleship, spiritual leadership, things like that, to equip the church as well, to serve and use spiritual gifts, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ out there, and to edify, to encourage, and to build up the Christians in the congregation as well. Now, we all have this requirement to edify, but it's something special uh, that pastor teachers have to do along with the prophets, apostles during the time uh, as well. Now, it's interesting because here in James, he says right off the bat, be not many masters. This is interesting thought because if James has to say, don't do this, then is it not reasonable to assume that they were doing this, Right? And so this really brings the idea to the fact that I've read one commentary mention in this first century church, there were all these people that sought the position. Everybody had a word. 
Everybody wanted to tell people about what God's word says and to go ahead and exegete the scripture and things like that. What James is actually telling them, stop. Stop. Now, there's a difference between desiring to be a pastor and desiring to be an elder, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a desire there, but there's also a gifting and a gift set that comes along with that. There's biblical requirements that come alongside. So what James is actually doing, he's telling them to stop seeking these positions, especially if God is not calling you to those positions. Now, this doesn't mean that nobody in the church can teach outside of these positions because we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse number 7, which is part of the Shema, which is Israelites' uh, sort of statement of faith, and what we are supposed to do as parents is to teach our children, teach our houses uh, when we rise up, when we lie down, when we walk in the way, always teaching about God in his ways. Proverbs 22, verse number 6. You know, the Proverbs train up a child in the way he shall go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We all have the requirement to raise up our families and encourage one another in biblical admonition and in truth. Within the local body of the church, there are specific people that are called to specific offices and positions that would do it from a church positional standpoint. But it doesn't negate the fact that we all need to, number one, teach and edify and build up our families. But number two, like I say regularly, to be the Berean. Don't just believe and trust what I say just because I'm speaking right here. But to go behind me, look at the scripture, study the scriptures out for yourselves to see whether those things be so. Just like the Bereans, and that's why they were more noble than in Thessalonica. Because they didn't only just sit there and listen and trust, they sat there, listened and trust and fact-checked. And now a thing today, you know, fact-checking is a bad word, bad thing, but we need that, especially in these pulpits. Because when you see what's going on and running rampant in these pulpits, there's a lot of issues. I'm sure you know that. What I believe is happening is many people were going uh, to this position, and they weren't called, they weren't gifted, and they were just merely seeking it for either influence or affluence, status, whatever the case is. And James is telling them, stop. Now, what's interesting, if you were to go to YouTube, I just did a, a search for Bible teacher. Just the words, Bible teacher. Anybody can make a YouTube channel. Anybody nowadays can make a website. Anybody can say they understand scripture. Anybody can say they read scripture and talk about scripture. Anybody can say what they think scripture says. We have to be very, very careful on who we're listening to. Because out of all these people right here, I can almost guarantee you just because I'm in the realm of YouTube and apologetics, things of that nature, and seeing the comments on some of the videos I produce from what I truly believe is a biblical concept and, and a position from not only a Baptist position, but from a free grace position as well, in a Christian position within our century. You should read some of the comments from so-called Christians that say, no, God does this, God does, I, does one, I did one video, talked about uh, the author of evil where uh, I argue that if you take Calvinism to its extreme, like some do, and we looked at some quotes from John Calvin, and uh, we know Calvinism goes back to the time of Augustine, but we look at Calvin. If we take Calvinism to the furthest extreme, we have to argue that God is the author and the creator of sin, that God is the author and creator of Satan's fall and rebellion. 
That's its logical conclusion. So we have to be careful whenever we're listening to people teach the word of God. We have to be careful. What are they saying? Have we done enough study and reading ourselves that we can point out some false information? Because nowadays anybody is saying they got a word from God. Anybody can say they want to speak. So James warns them here in verse number two, uh, verse number one, be not many masters. Why? Because we will receive a stricter judgment. You see, I don't take it lightly. And I know Pastor Ken doesn't take it lightly and Pastor Cody don't take it lightly. Anybody that wants to stand in front of a church body or in front of a camera for YouTube or whatever the case is and try to tell people what God's word says and how to apply it to their life, I know I'm going to be standing right before Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat Judgment and give an account for all the things that I've taught. Now, I know as I grow in my depth of knowledge and maturity of my faith that there may be some things five years ago I said that may not be as accurate as I wish I could have articulated it then, right? We all have that. I think it was Brock that made a really good point that there is a little bit of heresy in all of us because we all don't have perfect knowledge of Scripture. But what are we, perf- what are we trying to study from the heart's motivation by the Spirit to say, God, what is your word saying? Anybody that's willing to step up and say, thus saith Scripture, is going to stand before Jesus Christ to give an account. Pastor Ken's going to give an account on behalf of this congregation. Neither one of us is going to stand up in front of Jesus Christ and give an account for Pastor Ken. That's a burden, if you will. That's a calling. That's a responsibility as the under-shepherd of the church to feed the flock, to minister to the flock, to give an account over the flock and how he's ministered. And he's going to give, I know, a very good judgment. So we must understand that anybody that's seeking to teach, specifically in a position of influence, James says, be careful because you're going to incur a stricter judgment. This judgment is not unto eternal life. It's not unto eternal damnation or hell. Because we already know that James is writing to believers. We know that once we put faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins, that we are signed, sealed, and delivered to Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can pluck us out of the Father's hands. And that we, God remains faithful even if we remain faithless. And so there is nothing we could do that separate us from the eternal life Jesus Christ gives us at the moment of belief. That being the case... That's talking about positional justification. That's talking about our position in Christ. First we were unbeliever, uh, 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 not Christian, and now we're a believer and we are a Christian. But what James is talking here is not positional in Christ. He's talking about practical in living. And so in other words, we are all going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for our life and how we served Jesus Christ from the moment we trusted in his finished work on the cross. Some, we talked about this before. Some people say that free grace theology, if you believe that it's by simple faith that you can receive eternal life and there's nothing you can do to ever lose that eternal security, some people will say that that teaches a license to sin. 
Well, we talked about that already a few weeks back. I said, you don't really need a license to sin as much as I don't need a license to drive. If, but essentially, what is failed to remember is every single Christian will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account on how we served. Did we serve with the motivation of trying to fulfill God's kingdom here on earth, or did we try to serve to fulfill my kingdom here on earth? What was our motivation? Did we even try to study scripture? Did we try to read his word? If his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, have we even considered using those sources of light to show us where we are or where we need to go? Or are we just, you know, whitewashed tombs full of dead man bones, if you will? Is on what's on the inside really resonant on the outside or vice versa? And so what James is saying specifically to these people that were seeking this position, saying, you be careful because seeking this position, you're going to incur a stricter judgment than your average bear, if you will. And so that's the first thing I wanted to get across. Now, he sort of uh, changes topics here a little bit, but I do want to pause here for a minute. How many people like being misquoted? Yeah, no hands, right? Have you ever had anything you said or any instructions you given? Maybe you're trying to help somebody with a task and they didn't follow it. And they're like, hey, you told me to do this. You're like, I didn't tell you to do that. I told you to do this. Did that ever happened to you? Like people not following directions? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> what about marrying? <laughs> I know I'm always not following my wife's directions. She's in the nursery right now. So I, I don't dare say that uh, she doesn't follow mine. She, yeah, I don't dare do that. So I don't know what you're alluding to, Will. But none of us like being misquoted. None of us like it when somebody says, oh, this is what Pastor Danny said to do. And I really didn't say that. Or if they misconstrue my words. But most of the time, most of the church could care less about what God's word actually says. And they're just going to pull verses like Jeremiah 29, 11 out of the air. For I know the plans I have for you, declared the Lord. Plans of peace and prosper and give you expected end. That is not a universal call necessarily to the Christian life. That's a verse spoken to the Israelites under Babylonian captivity for 70 years. He's telling the Jewish people, it's okay. I have you under my mighty hand. I'm going to protect you. I know what I'm doing, and there is an end in sight after these 70 years. But most of the time, most of the church could care less what God is trying to get across to us. And we want to take Philippians 4.13 and apply it to everything. If we don't like being misquoted or, or our information misapplied, how much more carefully should we actually seek to understand what God's word truly says and is applied to our life today. Because again, he says we're going to stand before Christ. I, I don't want to stand before Christ. And Jesus said, I gave you 66 love letters, and you didn't even take time to understand one of them to its fullest. I don't want to stand before Christ and do that. And so with that being the case, I want to sort of draw an analogy, an illustration, on how many times we don't understand the proper ways of doing things. And, and, and with that being the case, I mean, how many people have ever had Tic Tacs? Yeah? So typically when you get a Tic Tac, you know, you just, right, you, you fumble through it, you get a couple, right? 
No? You're shaking your head no, right? Oh, there's a little cap. There's a little cap on the top, right? And so there's a little single serve right there. So you can like help. So that's pretty interesting. You know, a little unknown fact that, you know, this was built into the Tic Tacs on how you go ahead and give a Tic Tac to somebody without putting it all over your dirty, oily palms. And then, you know, somebody put the Tic Tac in their mouth. How many people knew, knew that? Okay, a couple of us, right? How about Saran Wrap or Reynolds Wrap or, or Foil? How, how many times does this happen? <laughs> how many times does that happen? Oh, you got what? Yeah, you got a little tabs right here, right? Why? Because now I ain't got to worry about it. It's pretty interesting, right? And so the people that make this actually know what they're doing. If we actually seek to understand how a product's used, right? Anybody want a banana? I literally just ate one. I literally just, just bought these, just ate one. Anybody want a banana? No? I just got these from Winn-Dixie. I didn't contaminate them. All right? Okay. Well, I'd do it. So how many people, when you get a banana, how do you open a banana? The tip? It's not the tip. How many people open it right up here? You can slice it. I know for a long time I was up here. Now what am I doing? I'm like squishing the top and trying to rip it off, right? But really... If you think about it, bananas, I guess they grow on trees. That's actually the root. And they're, they're, they grow like this. This is the stem of the banana. Have you ever wondered if you ever, how many people play Mario Kart? Okay, how many people ever seen cartoons and you see the little banana peel on the ground, right? The stem is always sticking up, right? That's because when you open a banana, you actually open it like this. Now you don't mush the top, you don't squeeze it all, and you got a little handle, right? That's how you actually peel a banana. And then if there's rock parts, you know, you get it, but I think most of the rock parts are sorted down here anyways, but, and so, how many people that was new? Now you have a very clean banana to eat. I don't want to eat a banana right now, I got half one in my office right now, and I got two Tic Tacs in my mouth. <laughs> but... I just wanted to go ahead and show this as way of illustration in the fact that there are some things that the people that create those products, they know what they're doing. They know how they're supposed to use, to be used, and they know that you could use it a different way, but you're not going to get the best use out of the product. It's the same way with Scripture. You see, when we come to Scripture... We want to take Philippians 4.13. We want to cling on to Jeremiah 29.11. We want to cling on to all these other passages that give us hope and peace and assurance. But is that really how those passages are meant to be used? Is that what God truly meant in the time of giving us Scripture? Now, they might be able to put a Band-Aid at the time. I might be able to take Philippians 4.13 and cling on to that hope if I'm playing a soccer game and I want to beat the other team. And that might give me a little bit of, you know, psychological hope. But that's not the fullest on what God's trying to get across. So I'm over here with the saran wrap trying to take it out, and it's flopping out of the container because I'm not using it as God truly wants it. And so when James is saying, be not many masters, for in doing so we're going to incur a stricter judgment, 
He's saying that if we are going to seek to truly, rightly divide the word of truth and teach it and tell people this is what God's word says and how to apply it, we have got to truly seek to understand it as best we can. And many people don't. They could care less. And you could tell this is a passion about mine because I'm, I see it so much inside the church and on YouTube and everybody wants to have a ministry. And they're doing the word of God so much disjustice. They're leading people down a false path, a false way. They're let, letting them look at themselves rather than Christ to gain victory. You see, eisegesis is easy, but exegesis is hard. Eisegesis simply means that we take our thoughts, our preconceived notion, and then when we read the verse, we take what we already think of, and we make the verse say that. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Strengtheneth me. And so I'm playing the soccer guy. I know he can do all that. Exegesis is simply trying to take from Scripture, starting with Scripture, taking it out and putting it inside my head. There's a difference. There's a reversal there. And so what we need to do is to exegete Scripture and not eisegete. Those are big fancy terms within hermeneutics, within uh, just theology, that we want to seek God's Word should change me. I should not change God's Word. And in order to do that, it's time-consuming. Let me take you through a general practice whenever I'm getting ready to teach or preach. First thing I do is read. Read whatever passage I'm going to be going over. I read James 3, 1 through 12. And I'm going to meditate on it. Really think about it, okay? What are the main things about this passage? Really just soak it up. I'm going to pray. God, I'm ignorant of Scripture without the Holy Spirit's impartation. Please show me what you want me to know. I'm going to try to find out what the context is. I need to know what's going on in these people's lives then. I need to understand the grammar. I need to understand the words. In certain passages, there are key words that are used over and over. God put those key words there for, for a reason. Then from there, when I'm understanding the key words and the passages, I'm going to go ahead and start sort of doing an outline. Okay, so he wrote this thought, and then there's sort of like this sub-bullet over here. Then he wrote this thought, another sub-bullet here. And then from there, I'm going to look at it as a whole, put on paper, be like, okay, what principle is God trying to get across? And realistically, the titles that I try to use are essentially the principles God wants us to understand through the passage. Then I typically do about three or four drafts of writing out what I'm going to talk about. Three or four drafts. Now from there, I'm going to do a final version. think I have everything done. But then what's going to happen is I'm going to get here 30 minutes before, and I'm going to, oh, I want to add something, so now I have to pen and ink something in there. And then every time before, I always pray, God, I can't do this. I need you to just use me just to speak what I believe is your truth. This is essentially my process in a nutshell every time I teach or preach. Too many times, though, when people want to get into the position of teaching, they're like, okay, Lord, thou hast been our dwelling place in all generations. And then they're just going to go off from there. 
not understanding what the psalmist is talking about, not understanding what a dwelling place was. What about generations, the various definitions that word can actually use within Scripture? They're just going to launch off from there. But if we seek to use a position like this for influence or affluence, James says, regardless, we're going to have a stricter judgment. And so that's why this is a process I go through every time. Eisegesis is easy. I can make scripture say whatever I want it to say. But I'm going to give an account to Jesus Christ if I do that. You see, James goes on there and say in verse number two, for in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able to uh, also bridle the whole body. James says that one's spiritual maturity can be seen by their words. We just talked about this in verse number 22 in chapter two, where he was talking about Abraham, how you can see Abraham and his, his works and how by his works, his faith was made perfect. The perfect there is not perfect as far as uh, sinless perfection. The perfect there is actually in reference to uh, maturity, a completion, a growth. And then in James chapter one, verse number 26, James writes, if any of you seem to be religious and what? Doesn't bridle his tongue. What does he do? He deceives his heart and his religion is vain. You see, to be perfect isn't about to be sinless. It's about to grow. How many people watch baseball? Okay. So in baseball, you have a term called uh, uh, the pitcher had a perfect game. Anybody heard that term before? Now, when I think of a perfect game, I'm like, whoa, he, he like struck out everybody. That's not what a perfect game is. Perfect game is the fact that nobody got on base. I mean, the pitcher could have hit a ball and could have went all the way out there, but it was caught. Some miraculous catch, diving catch. That wasn't the pitcher's good deed. That was the outfielder that made that miraculous catch. And so it's not that the pitcher pitched a perfect game and struck everybody out and didn't throw any balls or anything. It's that the pitcher didn't have a sinless game, but it was a complete game. It was, if you will, a mature game in the fact that nobody got on base. And as a team, they all worked together to prevent anybody getting on base and scoring a run. And so that is what James is talking about here. If we are able to control our words, we can really see how much spiritual maturity one has. Because you and I can sit here tonight and listen to this all day long. But then guess what? Money come. We all go back to the workplace. Now guess what? We cuss like a sailor. We talking like the world. We gossiping. We slandering. Things like that. Is that spiritual maturity? And that's one thing James is trying to get across. Here in verses 3 through 5, he says, Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth, that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships, which though they be so great, and are driven of fierce winds, yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor enlisteth. Even so, the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. A question for y'all. What insight can you personally draw out of these analogies? So he talks about a horse and a bridle. So the thing in the horse's mouth and the reins. And then he talks about a ship with its rudder, the little paddle-like thing on the back. Uh, so any thoughts on what James is talking about here? Any insight that you've personally had studying this passage out? And he's already drawn the analogy that both the bridle and the rudder are very small compared to the objects or the things that they're attached to. And yet they are so influential as far as the movement of those things. But anybody? I'm 
Paul. Bill. Oh. About false Here in this passage? No, I think he's uh, trying to draw an analogy. There's a lot of uh, analogies he uses here as far as uh, with the horse, with the ship, with fire, with fountains and figs and vines. And so I think he's just drawing what's known as word pictures, trying to paint uh, pictures in our minds and to be able to see things a little more clearly. Bill. Well, what comes to my mind is uh, the spiritual discipline of uh, our confession. Okay. This is not a thing of, you know, just because I said it's going to happen. Right. You know, I, I want the Cadillac, so I speak it into existence. You know, right. That kind of silliness. But it, it's a thing of learning to speak what God's Word says and holding to that. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to what I think or I feel. It, it, it's not that we, we, we don't deny the presence of some things, but mm-hmm. that you say what God's Word says uh, in spite of what we think or feel. Okay, that's good. Uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's confession. Confession, yeah. Um, like I said, spiritual discipline. No, definitely. Like reading, praying, and everything else is just a discipline. You have to learn it. It no. takes a lifetime to, to get Right, okay, definitely. Cody. I mean, I'm just not reading too into it. I'm okay. I'm not what it says there. But how it goes is it's just careful who you let guide and lead you along. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. false teachers, what have you, you know. Mm-hmm. Simple as that, because you know there's a lot of false teachers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well. Mm-hmm. No, definitely. Sorry, what I was looking at as well. See, this is, anybody know what type of horse this is? <laughs> That's my thoughts, Jerry. Uh, my is my daughter's favorite horse. Apparently, it's called a, a Frasian horse. Frasian horse. These horses get about 1,200 pounds, 12 to 1,500 pounds. And yet, with a rightly domesticated, broken horse, broken meaning trained, with a bridle that weighs less than two pounds, you can control that 12, 1,500 pound horse, whichever way you want it to go. How many people not know what kind of boat this is? <laughs> a little more specific, huh? Aircraft carrier. Aircraft carrier. It's a J-30 sailboat. Sound like I know what I'm talking about. It's a J-30 sailboat. And that is uh, the rudders right there uh, next to it. Basically, the, the sailboat can weigh upwards of 7,000 pounds, while the rudder weighs only 80 pounds. The rudder is over 87 times lighter than the sailboat. And yet, the rudder tells the boat which way to go. You see, what I think James is really trying to get across, and there's some great thoughts here, uh, all of them, but it does not matter, sort of like what you were saying, Will, the size, our tongue, though it is one of the smallest parts of our body, has one of the biggest influences in not only our direction, but somebody else's direction of life also. 
our tongues meaning our words. You see, James also says that our tongue has the ability to cause an uncontrollable fire. And the fact that if you've ever been around a forest fire and that the firefighters truly don't know which way the fire is going to go. But when the wind hits, the wind's going to steer that fire in whatever direction the wind's going. It's so realizing that our words carry significant impact, not only in the direction of the life and where we're trying to go, but the direction of those around us. Which means the words you and I say, we got to be very careful. Because words you and I say should always be in loving, gracious, careful manner to edify the next person. You see, really we're going to finish up with 6 through 12 because James says the tongue is a fire. A world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body. And setteth on course uh, the fire on the fire, the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast and of birds, of serpents, and things of the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. He's talking about the tongue. Therewith, with the tongue, bless we God and even the Father, and therewith curse we men, which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be so. Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either a vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. You see, when we get to the fact of Paul saying that all of creation has been tamed with the exception of the tongue, the exception of our words. We just went to the zoo, saw some amazing animals at the zoo. The lion was moving around. We were in the, the jaguar pen. They have a black jaguar and a regular jaguar, and they were both, you know, prowling. And it seems they're pretty much as tamed as a big feline cat can be. We've seen uh, dolphins out at the golf Arium down there by, uh, what is it, Golf Breeze, I think it is, in Pescola area. Uh, that was pretty neat seeing a dolphin show. They've been tamed and trained. But James says, rather, God says, the tongue can no man tame. That means you and I cannot tame our words. And in essence, what he means is we need a supernatural agency to help us to tame and control our words. You see, this is what Paul says when he says, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh in Ephesians chapter four. He says, if we seek to walk according to the spirit and have this Holy Spirit guide us, we can, through the Holy Spirit's power, choose our words a lot more carefully and make sure that the words we use as a rudder or as a bridle can help steer one's life on the path towards Christ rather than use our words with malice and ill intent and divert them from getting to know Christ. Too many times, and you've heard it said before, Gandhi even said it, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. A lot of times the people outside the church walls, a lot of times their problem is not necessarily the Bible, it's because of the wounds that Christians give them. 
You see what's fascinating here in, in this passage? It says in verse number nine, bless we God, even the Father, and therewith we curse men, which are made after similitude of God. Out of the same mouth, verse 10, proceedeth blessing and cursing, my brethren, these things ought not be so. James doesn't give qualifiers. He does not say we are only to bless Christians. And it's okay if you curse an unbeliever or speak down or slander them or cuss at them or have hateful speech. He doesn't say that. He says they're made after the likeness of God. We are all made in God's image. Unbelievers are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. But too many times we see them as the enemy. And so we're choosing ill words to try to make a point or try to distance from them. But you see, Jesus says, bless them that curse you. Paul says, bless them which persecute you. Paul says, speak evil of no man. And Peter says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing. We don't pick and choose who we speak good, edifying, gracious, loving words with. We're supposed to use gracious, loving, edifying words with to everybody because we are all made in the image of God. That does not mean we withhold truth from people. Truth hurts sometimes. If I had a cancer diagnosis, I would want somebody to give me the hard truth to say, hey, I have one month to live. That way I can get final affairs in order. Truth hurts. But there's a difference in how we give that truth. Truth is much easier received through a gentle, kind spirit than it is through an argumentative and mean spirit. So if we want to reach unbelievers out there, yes, we do need to say, your sins separate you from a holy and righteous God. And if you die in unbelief, you will have an eternity outside of his presence in a place called hell. But we are not supposed to say, you're going to hell because you don't believe. We have to have a loving and gracious spirit, a gentle spirit to try to reach people. It's not withholding truth. It's how are we delivering that truth. There is no excuse. So he gives an illustrations of the fact of a, a fountain, you know, that doesn't give forth sweet water and bitter. A fig tree producing berries and vines producing figs. It doesn't happen. You don't see that. The one way we need to prevent ourselves from falling into the trap of giving these unchoice words is in Proverbs 4.23. Because we need to guard our, help with, guard our heart with all diligence. Why? Proud of it springs the issues of life. We need to protect what we're putting in our heart. Which means the more of Christ we have in our heart, the less room there is of the world to be in there. And so the more we saturate our minds and our body and our soul with the Spirit, the less of the world's room that is in there. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, I believe it is, to be filled with the Spirit. He's not saying be filled to speak in tongues and things like that. He's saying allow the Holy Spirit to so permeate and saturate your soul that you can feel the Spirit's impulse and leading in your life. And so in essence, what James is saying, he, he's warning people not to seek a position of teaching within a local body because there's going to be a stricter judgment that we, 
are all going to be a part of, but to some degree it's stricter for those that want to declare the Word of God in a public setting. But also reminding the fact that in their time of struggle and persecution in the dispersion, you better believe they have opportunities to speak ill of those that are oppressing them. Don't we? We don't need much reason to go ahead and speak ill of those that we disagree with. But he's saying we should not speak that way because our tongue, though it's so small, can control the direction one way or the other towards God, away from God, towards the path of, of a fruitfulness or off the path of fruitfulness. And he says it doesn't matter if they're Christians or not Christians. We should not bless one and curse the other. We are all made in the image of God. So we need to watch how we're saying and who we're saying it to. And I want to just draw this illustration with a close. I'm sure we've all seen this uh, diagram before. But the story goes like this. There was once a little boy who had a bad temper. His father gave him a bag of nails and told him every time he lost his temper, he must hammer a nail into the back of the fence. The first day, the boy had driven 37 nails in the fence. Over the next few weeks, as he learned to control his anger, the number of nails hammered daily gradually dwindled down. He discovered it was easier to hold his temper than to drive the nails into the fence. Finally, the day came when the boy did not lose his temper at all. He told his father about it, and the father suggested that the boy now pull one nail out for each day that he was able to hold his temper. The days passed, and the young boy was finally able to tell his father all the nails were gone. The father took his son by the hand and led him to the fence. The father said, you've done well, my son, but look at the holes in the fence. The fence will never be the same. When you say things in anger, they leave a scar just like this one. You can put a knife in a man and draw it out. It won't matter how many times you say, I'm sorry. The wound is still there, and a verbal wound is just as bad as a physical one. You see... The fence is still functional with all the holes, but its integrity is severely compromised now. Now it'll take even less for that fence, those pickets, to withstand the wind, the rain, the sleet, things like that. Similarly, the words you and I choose to believers and unbelievers have similar consequences. We could say sorry, we could try to help heal the wounds, but those scars remain forever. The hardest healings are the ones inside the body. So that's why this week I want us to focus on praying that the Lord will use our words for only edifying and loving and gracious purposes, whether Christian or unchristian. The question for all of us tonight is, are we going to be a doer of the word and not just a hearer only? You've heard the word of God in this application in your life today. Will you build others and not burn them? Will you heal people and not hurt them? Will you stop cursing those that curse you? Will you choose words that edify? Or will we deceive our own selves by being a hearer only? And essentially, that's what James is getting across in this point. Our words matter to the believer and the unbeliever. And I pray this week we just focus on how are we using our words to lift up and edify the people around us. Let us pray. God, I thank you just for this evening and the ability to just... Uh, uh, speak tonight. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit would just work on us and continue to build us and strengthen us and mature us in our words. And Lord, I just thank you that there's forgiveness found uh, when we do speak. 
uh, a bad word or, or ill intent. Lord, I thank you for the forgiveness and the cleansing there is. But Lord, allow us to just continually uh, to get better and to look more like Christ. And we pray for the Spirit's power and enablement to get us through. We thank you that there is victory to be had if we just reach for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.